through the Gospel of John with you. And so I um, decided that since uh, the Gospels are written expressly to answer one question specifically, namely, who is Jesus, that I would um, spend some time this morning taking one of those really major answers to that question, that Jesus is in fact God, and expanding on it uh, with the rest of the New Testament. It may be giving you um, an outline of something you could possibly share or possibly uh, rely on uh, as you keep on going through the Gospel of John, uh, where you will find uh, John on more than uh, occasions, actually, than any of the other Gospel writers, talking about this one singular issue. The reason that matters is the who question always matters. Um, when you're a little kid and an adult that you've never met before tells you what to do, uh, tells you to clean your room, tells you to go back inside, tells you not to sing so loud, talk so loud, etc., the very first question that pops in your mind and might pop out of your mouth is, who are you? Who are you that I should obey you? Uh, I, I don't, you don't look like uh, my brother, one of my brother's favorite memories of my oldest daughter is my oldest daughter just went eyeball to eyeball with my kid brother and said, you're not my daddy. And uh, just laid it down. Yeah, you, uh, you, you, the who doesn't give you any credibility. And who is a question that we ask for credibility. Also, who provides security sometimes? When my kids were really small, I've got four kids. When the older three were really tiny, uh, we were, I was doing some grad work on the East Coast. And um, uh, we would have uh, thunderstorms all the time. And the lights would go out. And they would scream like there were scorpions in their bed. And, um, and so I would walk in. I'd go, hey, hey, it's okay, it's okay. And as soon as they heard my voice, everything abated. No more fears. Well, yeah, I mean, you can look at me. I don't look imposing enough to govern the, you know, the natural world. Uh, and yet, my kids, as soon as they heard my voice, the who mattered. The fact that I was standing in the room was all the security they ever needed. And so the who of anything really does matter. Uh, and so this, uh, this idea really matters with Jesus as well. Um, if you would ask me when I was a kid, hey, do you believe that Jesus is God? I don't know that I would have known how to answer that question. I'm not completely sure I would have been able to craft an answer. I, I think I would have said something like, no, 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 no. I, I think Jesus is the son of God. And I would have been right, but I would have also been wrong at the same time. And, um, and as we go through, I'll, I'll show you why that is. Who really matters? And we'll ask that question at the very end of our, our, our time together. So why does it matter? But as we go through, I want to give you a really practical way to remember the deity of Jesus. The fact that Jesus is in fact God uh, Almighty uh, in the flesh. And that's hands. Hands. H-A-N-D-S. Hands. Uh, each of those letters stands for something. It's a little acronym. First of all, the H. Jesus receives the honor that God the Father does. Jesus receives the honor that God the Father does. There's a number of uh, different things uh, that we could say. I learned in the first service that I get long-winded sometimes, and I almost uh, ran out of time with the entire message, so I'm going to do some lighter lifting on the front. Uh, first of all, the worship of the Son like the Father. In the first century, you did not fall down on your knees and worship a human being and call them God. That was not okay. Now, you may have been able to do that with, say, uh, uh, one of the Caesars. They perceived themselves to be gods. 
But in a Jewish context where Jesus is, that's complete non-starter. No way was this going to happen. And yet, you see the disciples worshiping Jesus. Angels were worshiping Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 through 11, the end of all sort of things is bound up in the universal worship of Jesus. Jesus, who does not count it uh, a quality with God, a thing to be grasped. Paul says right there in Philippians 2, it's he is God. He doesn't have to grasp it being God, but he humbles himself and becomes a servant, taking on the form of a servant, taking on death, and therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and has given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess in heaven, on earth, and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So God is glorified, the Father is glorified in the exaltation of Jesus as God. The wholesale worship of the universe to Jesus as God. Also, um, the disciples pray. They pray to Jesus. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, verse 24 through 25, they pray to Jesus. Stephen, the first martyr, prays to Jesus in Acts chapter 7, verse 59 and 60. Paul prays to Jesus for his famous thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 and 9. Jesus actually encourages his followers to pray to him. He says to them in John 14, verse 14, ask of me anything. If you ask it in my name, you'll have it. Now, that is a crazy thing to say to somebody. I can't even imagine looking at my wife and saying to her, Sweetheart, ask of me anything. And if you ask it in my name, I would probably get about that much out. And she would look at me and go, are you off your meds? What are you talking about for? I mean, it's just, you're not, you, you, I know what we have in the bank. I can't ask anything from you. Uh, and, and so uh, it would be very obvious. In the first century, and again, in a Jewish context, you do not beckon people to pray to you. That's exactly what Jesus just got done doing. Do you know why? Because Jesus is trying to demonstrate to his disciples that just as God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was the only object of prayer in the Old Testament, now the true God has come in the flesh and is standing before them. And now to pray to Jesus is to pray to God. It is a remarkable and revolutionary kind of idea. Not only do they worship and pray to God and showing honor to God, but they sing praises to God as well. Praises to Jesus as well, just like they do the Father. Christians are commanded to sing hymns in Ephesians chapter 5, 18 through 20. Um, Paul says to the church, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. The Lord is one of the names that Paul utilizes expressly for Jesus. When he's talking about God the Father, he just says that. God the Father oftentimes, but he says the Lord is more often than not pointed at Jesus, as that particular text is. The, um, uh, also, 
um, the angels in heaven sing to Jesus in Revelation 5, verse 9 and 10. The early church sings songs to Jesus. In fact, we have some of them recorded. That that I quoted to you a while ago, Philippians chapter 2, 6 to 11, that's a first century hymn. They would have sung that together. They wouldn't have just quoted it. They would have sung it together. It would have been put to music somehow. And um, I've heard it put to music several times in choirs and, and things like that. And, and it's, it's a powerful, powerful testimony to the absolute supremacy of Jesus. That's what they sang. They sang songs that they could turn around and teach from. That's not something that we could probably do in the United States. If you just without, uh, you know, prudence or discretion just decided to, uh, you know, turn on your radio and take anything you heard on the radio and, and use that to teach yourself about God, you'd probably be okay about 50% of the time. And the other 50% of the time, it might get weird. And, and, uh, but here in the first century, all of their songs produce things that they can live by, learn from. They point to really significant things like the identity of Jesus. Jesus here is sung to as God Almighty, blessed forever. They also honor the Son. And why would they not? Jesus tells them to do it. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Listen to what Jesus says. And this comes on the heels of, of him calling himself Son of God. You remember I told you a while ago that if you'd asked me when I was a kid, hey, is Jesus God? I would have said, well, no, he's probably the Son of God. And when I said that, I would have meant somehow that Jesus was demoted. But that's not the way Son of God appears here. That's not the way anyone would have understood it in the first century. You look all the way back up to verse 18. This is what's happened. Jesus has healed someone. It's the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are really uptight about it. And so they're chastising him about that. That's a punishment worthy of death uh, in Exodus and Deuteronomy. And, and so they, they are, they're pushing the envelope with him on this. And then he says this, like it would... This is not going to calm him down. He answers in verse 17, My father is working until now, and I am working. And the Jewish leadership lost the collective minds. They went bananas and decided they were going to kill him. Jesus stops him and says, Whoa, 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 why are you trying to kill me? Look at it, verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath... But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Son of God means you're God in the, in, the, in the New Testament. Now, the reason that confuses us as modern Americans is because in our culture, when we float that English word G-O-D out into the open, it could mean a whole host of things, the way that people talk now. But in this context... These are, he is surrounded by Jewish culture. There is only one definition. And so when he says God is his father, he is saying he's God. Think about it. If you're the son of a duck, what are you? Yeah, you're a duck. Uh, you're, not a, you're not a giraffe or, or, or something like that. You are a duck. And so when you say my father and you're referencing God as your father, you are declaring yourself unequivocally to be God. And that's, and that's exactly what they hear. That's why they want to kill him. But why? Look at this. Down to verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, 
so also the Son gives life to all whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Why? That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That is a remarkable text. Jesus, with all of the authority that he has, is honored just as the Father. That's why God the Father gives him all authority. He said there will be no mistake To honor Christ is to honor God. That's why Jesus in John 14 says, I and the Father are one. If you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he says things like that. In fact, that's so binding that there are some groups in the United States, Christianity, or or they're really kind of aberrations of Christianity, that that don't believe in the Trinity. But they say, well, no, Jesus and the Father are the same guy. I mean, it's understandable, right? Because Jesus binds himself to the Father so clearly. But really what he's just saying is as God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of creation, the God of the Exodus, is the only God worthy of worship in the Old Testament, Jesus is in fact that God standing before you. It's remarkable. Not only does he have the honor of God, but A, it's next letter in hands, he has the attributes of God. The attributes of God are talked about quite a bit by um, uh, systematic theologians, and systematic theologians typically uh, split them into two different sets of attributes. Attributes that you and I can have, like goodness and wisdom. We certainly cannot have them like God, but we can have them. And then other attributes that we can't have, like eternality. Like you might live forever, perhaps your soul would live forever from this point going forward, but none of you have lived forever from this point going backwards. But Jesus has. Jesus, in fact, is talked about in the New Testament as the spitting image of God. The very spitting image of God. For those of you who may not have grown up in the United States, um, and, and maybe you're not used to all of our weird, like, massive mountain of colloquial expressions, the spitting image of someone has nothing to do actually with spitting. It just means you look exactly like them. So when my son was little, uh, my, son, my son played Division I college football, so he's much bigger than I am. But when he was small, people would say, oh, that kid is a spitting image of you. And now his son, people look at his son and go, oh, that kid is a spitting image of, of, uh, of Jonathan. He looks just like Jonathan. I say, yeah, he does. It's pretty hilarious. And, and um, there's also other things. Uh, yeah, I grew up in Alabama, and so in the South, we have all kinds of colloquial expressions that no one else in the United States has. So, for example, one of my mom's favorite things to say about uh, my son was, he looked like you just pulled him right out of your nose. And uh, that's, that's like saying, he looks just like you. I have no idea why we couldn't just stick with, he looks just like you. But that, uh, that was one of those things. When New Testament writers look at Jesus, they say things like this. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9 In him resides all the fullness of deity bodily. Isn't that crazy? All of the godness of God is in this guy. They have to know God really well to be able to say that. You have to know God really well. You have to have some real grasp of the scriptures. And of course, this is Paul. He's trained as a Pharisee. He's got an incredible grasp of the scriptures. He looks at Jesus and he says, this is God in a body. Incredible. 
Jesus also is the exact representation of God in his eternality. For example, Jesus is talked about as the image of the invisible God in Colossians 1.15. In Philippians chapter 2, 6-11, which we just read a while ago, Christ existed in the form of God in heaven before he became man and enjoyed equality with God. He existed in heaven with God the Father. Paul referring to Jesus being sent from God uh, is, um, is sent in the same manner as the Spirit is sent in Galatians. Jesus makes clear that he came from heaven in John chapter 8, 42, and in John chapter 10, verse 36, and he returns to heaven in John chapter 13, 3. The New Testament writers even credit Jesus with being around in serious moments in the Old Testament. For example, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 34, Jesus plays a serious role in the history of Jerusalem. Paul indicates that Christ is with the Israelites in the wilderness in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 13. John records that Jesus existed before Abraham. And he does it in a way that would have really offended the Jewish population that was around him. He said, before Abraham was born, and then the next thing you expect maybe to hear him say is something like, I was. But instead, he drops what every uh, you know, self-respecting Jew knew he was saying. Before Abraham was, I am. I am is a direct quote from Exodus chapter 6. The direct name of the God of the Exodus. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus just laid claim to it. Referenced himself before Abraham. This is pretty incredible. Not only does Jesus have the honor of God the Father in the Old Testament, but Jesus shares the attributes alone of God. But also, and this is probably the most important one, and so you better get your writing utensil out and ready to rock and roll here. This is the names of God. See, it's one thing to be able to say that someone's got the honor of the deeds of God. That's, that, that almost sells it right there, really. But when writers, half of whom were Jewish, look at you and point at you and call you God, well, that's a different ballgame altogether. That elevates everything. Think about it. There is no conceivable way that you can think anything other about Jesus than he is God Almighty, worthy to be praised, or maybe you'll think he's a complete nut job, but there's no in-between. You don't look at people who claim to be God and say, but they're probably really good people. If your neighbor comes over to you and says, hey, I don't really tell everybody this, but I'm God. Guys, you don't listen to that over the fence and then go to your wife and say, hey, we've been looking for a babysitter. Great news. God's next door. We can just leave the kids with him. What could go wrong, right? Cosmic power, morals, the whole nine yards. Right there in a package, right next door. You don't do that. If you do, your wife is going to check you for, for some need for medical attention. Because you always move away from people who call themselves God, not toward them. John, or, or the Bible though, talks about Jesus as if he's God and calls him that. So let's make a run through the, uh, uh, the, the occurrences of gospel writers pointing at Jesus and using the word God to describe him. It sells it completely. Let's start with this, John 1, 1. John 1, 1. 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1. Right beside John 1.1, write John 1.18. John just digs down and doubles down on this idea in John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. John 1.18. John 20 verse 28. See, I told you that John really does this more than anybody else in the gospel writers. John 20, 28. Thomas, who is a cynical type. Not really cynical, but just reasonable, right? The disciples come to him and they say, we've seen Jesus. He rose from the dead. Well, I mean, seriously, who would you believe that? I mean, I don't believe that. I'm always fascinated by listening to uh, academics being in the academic world. Uh, I get exposed to a, a lot of different voices. And listening to academics talk about people in the first century like they're just complete dupes is hilarious. Like that in the first century, if someone in your family died, that somebody else would come to you and go, hey, I know you're sad, but don't worry about it. Give it a few days. He might come back. Nobody did that in the first century. If you died in the first century, no one ever expected to see you again, just like the 21st century. It just, it's, death is death. And so when they came to Thomas and said, no, we saw him, really, Thomas was like, you did not. You should stop doing this. This is mean. And then Jesus shows up. And Thomas collapses onto his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. Calls Jesus that. Jesus, my Lord and my God. Right beside John 20, 28, write Acts 20, 28. Acts 20, 28. Here, Paul is saying goodbye to the elders at Ephesus. And he says to them, in preparing them to be without him, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Did you get that? The church of God which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus is the only one that's ever talked about in the New Testament ever obtaining or winning or, or, or uh, arresting or collecting or rescuing the church with his own blood, with his own sacrifice. That's what Paul is talking about. God, which he obtained with his own blood. Right next to that, Romans 9, 5, where Paul is unpacking the dignity of Israel. He says, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Christ who is God over all. This is an incredible thing to say. Paul was raised a Pharisee. He would have killed anybody in his earlier life that said something like this, pointing at Christ. And by the way, this is Christ whom everyone that Paul is writing to knows has died and is now preached to has risen again from the grave. Christ, God over all, blessed forever. It's an amazing title. Right next to Romans 9.5, write Titus 2.13. Paul's unpacking the realities of grace. If you, um, if you grew up in the church like I did, I grew up, again, in Alabama, Bible Belt. We had super weird ideas, I feel like, about most things. Uh, and, um, but grace was one of them. I remember youth directors and pastors, and things like that, they would tell me, they would say, grace is unmerited 
favor. So it's something I don't deserve. I mean, I've got a working list of stuff that I don't deserve. Uh, eat good stuff and bad stuff. Uh, just, but, but stuff I know I don't deserve. So it doesn't tell me much. But in Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, all the way down through 14, Paul unpacks grace in no uncertain terms. Grace is this agent that comes out of eternity into time and space and arrests people's hearts and trains them and shapes them. And one of the things it shapes is your affections. And Paul says about your affections that not only are you, uh, are you shaped into living wisely, but you wait for your blessed hope. In verse 13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's an amazing statement. We are waiting with bated breath for the return of our great God and Savior. 2 Peter 1.1 uses the same phrase, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 8, which the entire chapter is about the deity of Jesus, celebrates Jesus like this. But of the Son... Son of God, he says, your throne, he quotes from Psalm 110, your throne, O God, is forever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. He's talking about Jesus. Your throne, O God, is forever. So uh, right next to that, our last text, 1 John 5, 20. 1 John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come. And he's given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. Now, if you're sitting in, you know, Starbucks with a family member or a friend, someone maybe who came for a visit to your house, that's a great set of texts to take them through. Because you know what everyone that you know needs more than anything? I don't even know all the people you know, but I can still make this statement. They desperately need to know who Jesus is. They desperately need to know who he is. And I realize that we say a lot of things about Jesus. He's friend, and we, 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 we use words like shepherd, and things like that. But the most significant thing that you can tell someone is that Jesus is God. All other religions have gods that are way off in the distance that you work for. You work for, you live for, you do better for. And if you do better, if you do good, if you, if you work harder, if you morally reform, then maybe they accept you. But not this. This God wraps himself in flesh and comes into the fray with us to save us out of it. That's big. That's the world. That's everything. Let's move on. Jesus also does the deeds of God. Honor of God, attributes of God, names of God, deeds of God. We're running short on time, so I'm going to hit you with just maybe one. And that's this. Go back to the Gospel of John again. Go back to the first chapter. And let's look at that text again, beginning with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Check this out. 
all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the creator. And, and if, in fact, you still, would still struggle with that, flip over to Hebrews chapter 1 again. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 10. And right after that quotation of, um, of, the, uh, uh, of Psalm 110, you have a quotation of Psalm 102. You, you, Lord, speaking to the Son, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain the same. You are the eternal creator. Jesus does the deeds of the Father. And also Jesus sits in the seat of the Father. Honor of the Father, attributes of the Father, names of the Father, deeds of the Father, sits in the seat of authority of the Father. Maybe one of the most pronounced passages, there are a number of things that we could say about it, but maybe one of the most pronounced passages in the book of Revelation where Jesus is worshipped in Revelation 4 and 5 with the same kind of worship as the Father and sits in the throne room of the Father. In Revelation chapter 5, the writer looks and he sees Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father and myriads upon myriads of creatures and people from every tribe, tongue, and nation saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and glory and power and honor forever. Jesus sits in the seat of authority. In the first century, when you were sitting down in a room, you were in charge. You had authority. I don't know when that flipped. At the university, I stand all day and teach. In the first century, I would sit all day. And these 18 to 22-year-olds who are in far better condition to stand all day they would stand all day. But instead, I get to stand all day. Here, if a king was seated on his throne, nobody else in the room was sitting. Because it looked like that you were vying for authority. But Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father. Why? Because he's God also. God the Son is God also. When you're thinking about this, we're not talking about the mathematical equation 1 plus 1 plus 1 equals 3. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit equals 3 gods. We're talking about God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. 1 times 1 times 1 equals 1. And that's exactly what we're talking about. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that Jesus has the honor of the Father, the attributes of the Father, the names of the Father, the deeds of the Father, and sits in authority with the Father? Why does it matter? It matters because it's the defining moment in the gospel. It's the defining thing of the gospel. Not just the work of Christ, but the person of Christ. The person and work of Christ are inextricably related. There was a movie review that came out in the New York Times um, in 2006 about this movie that focused on post-war Vietnam in the 1970s. And it was a series of episodes uh, in the movie that... Um, 
that, that all kind of just surfaced around one another. One of the episodes was about a rickshaw driver named Hai and a prostitute named Lon. And the, the movie focused on these unreachable desires that just governed these two people. Lon wanted more than anything to live like the men that she serviced in these great hotels that she went into. These magnificent, you know, architectural hotels. And she would be, after she was uh, finished with her job, she would simply be escorted out the service elevator back into the harsh world of reality. And the more she tried to work to free herself, the further down in the abyss she went. She could never seem to ever reach the comfort and security, insulation of these people that she saw. High, on the other hand, his greatest desire was Lon. He was totally in love. And so the movie says there's a rickshaw driving contest. I didn't know such things existed, but they apparently do. And in this rickshaw driving contest, High wins the contest. And he gets this big load of money, like life-changing amounts of money. And he uses it for Lon. He buys a rinse out one night at this extremely expensive hotel and says to Lon, I want you to be there tonight. And of course, this is the Sundance Film Festival, so everybody expects that the next scene would be seedy. But in fact, it's not at all. When Lon gets there, she expects what she always expects. And High says to her, I want you to order anything you want. Anything from room service. Eat all the food that you want. I'll pay for it. I want you to relax. If you want to watch television, if you want to watch movies, if you want to do anything, relax. The only thing I ask is if you'll let me watch you go to sleep. I'll leave you alone. And he did it. He's good to his word. She woke up the next day in this comfortable bed in this beautiful place. The writer of the movie review was not a Christian. What he didn't seem to understand in his review is he was tapping in to a very Christian idea. He said, hi, just simply went back to rickshaw driving. Just went back to his life. He said, Lon, something in Lon snapped. She could never be the same. She could never go back to her job. Why? The writer in the, the review says, she had experienced love from a man who had all authority and power over her. And he used all of that authority and power for her. And she had never been loved like that. She had never known of authority and power that was used for her gratification, to make her happy, to make her secure. See, that's the heart of the gospel. Jesus is the one from that first text we read whom all judgment has been given to. In Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth is given to me. And Jesus, with all of that authority and power, goes to the cross for you. If you're not a Christian today, and you're here, and you're under the impression that the gospel is like I thought it was when I was growing up in Alabama. I thought the gospel was, you give me 
the moral package that you live by, and now I'm going to give you this moral package. Now you just change the way you live. You sing different songs, you wear different clothes, have your hair differently. You try to morally reform. That's not the gospel of Jesus. That's literally every other religion that I know of, but it's not the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is this. That God has seen you and knows that you can never be righteous. And utilizes all of his power and authority to come for you. And he does so at his own loss. So that he can give himself and lavish his grace. My favorite lines from Ephesians 2. Lavish his grace upon you throughout eternity. That's the gospel. Whatever it is that you're holding on to as God, whatever it is that you're clinging to as Savior, whether it's your own religious morality or whether it's your own self-autonomous sense of, of, uh, of morality, let it go. It won't save you. It can't save you. Run to Jesus who is more beautiful and more powerful than anything you can imagine and who will love you greater than you've ever been loved by anybody before. Run to Jesus. Jesus is God Almighty in the flesh. And who you are means the world to what you do. And because of who Jesus is, he can save you. Because of who Jesus is, Christian, he can sustain you. And he's worthy, as Paul says, to be praised as God forever and ever. Father, in the name of Christ, I thank you for these brothers and sisters and ask that you would bless them, keep them, cause your face to shine on them. I pray that you would provide them with grace to know you and to love you. In the name of Jesus, amen.